Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you and we just think of all the needs around the world, even before we talk about what's going on in this room, Lord. We think about um, the, the hurricane that's beginning to hit um, Florida, that's already hit Cuba, and I mean, the islands down in that area, Lord, and we pray, Lord, for protection for the people there, Lord. We pray for those who are um, going to respond to that, you're going to help with that, Lord, that you give them strength and wisdom. We, Lord, we pray for your church to shine down there as they uh, offer help. We pray for Houston and the things that have happened there with the flooding and the storms that they experience. And then around the world, we think of India and the flooding there. And Lord, this is a very difficult environmental time. We think of the Northwest and we think of Montana with the fires. And Lord, we're just immensely thankful that you have spared us these things, Lord. And we pray for the people that are enduring them, Lord, that you give them grace and that you'd use this as a way to draw many people closer to you, that they would turn to you in a time of trouble and, and see you as, as one who can meet all their needs. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this morning, we're in the second week of our series in Galatians. We're calling it Finally Free because um, by God, the gospel is a message of freedom. Gospel means good news. And the gospel is the good news that through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, we can be free from the penalty of our sins. Um, we can increasingly over time be free from the power of our sins, from bondage to sin. And we can be free from kind of that relentless urge to try and earn or keep our acceptance before God. The gospel is a message of freedom. And the Galatians is a great book to go to, to, um, to look at that message of freedom. Um, Paul was the first one to bring the gospel to Galatia. Um, he brought the gospel there, started some churches. They believed in the good news of Jesus. Then he went off to other unreached areas to share the gospel there. But then he hears word back that some other missionaries had, had come in and they were bringing a different message. They were distorting the gospel of Jesus. And so he wrote this letter back to them. To, to warn them of that, these false teachers. And what the false teachers were doing is they were adding other requirements for salvation. Paul told them that Jesus alone has secured their full acceptance and salvation before God. And these teachers told him, no, 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 no. There's some other things that he didn't tell you that would complete you, that would, that would make you a real Christian, that would give you real salvation, that would give you real acceptance, that would make you a real member of God's family, give you real security. They probably said something like this, you know, well, you've heard Paul's perspective on the gospel that the apostles are teaching in Jerusalem, but here's ours, because we were taught there too, what they would have said. They would have said, you know, Paul's message about the Jewish Messiah is totally true, but he didn't give you all the information, you know. Here's the rest. The rest is, if you're really going to be saved by a Jewish Messiah, really be a part of God's family, then you need to become a little bit more Jewish yourself. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Mosaic law, which means things like the kosher laws and all those kind of laws of the Mosaic, um, the Mosaic law, the Torah. And they would have said something like, you know God only has Jewish kids, right? You're going to have to become a lot more Jewish to enter this. And so they were adding. So their, their gospel was a legalistic gospel. It was faith in Jesus plus something they bring to the table equals salvation. Okay? Whereas the gospel is faith in Jesus alone, this was you bring something of your own. That's called legalism. That's one of the forms of legalism. Legalism is adding anything to try and complete our righteousness before God. And so Paul starts off here in verse 11, and he says this, I would have you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. 
I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, you know, you got me wrong. I didn't learn from the same sources these people say they learned from. I didn't get this from the apostles. I got this straight from Jesus. And then later on in verse 16, he says, even after he came to Christ, it says in verse 16, the second half, he says, I did not immediately consult anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They only heard that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. His big point in this section is that he didn't get the gospel from anyone. He didn't get it from his own human reflection. He didn't get it even from the other apostles. He got it directly from Jesus. Now we're going to see next week that when, when he finally did go up to Jerusalem many, many years later and, and met with the, um, the apostles, their gospel agreed. Okay? The gospel that the apostles in Jerusalem preached was the same gospel Jesus preached because they got it from the same source, which is Jesus. And these, these uh, legalistic missionaries were the, were the problem. And the way that he's going to try and show that, that he didn't get his gospel from any human source is by telling his testimony. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Paul's testimony. We're going to look at his backstory. We're going to look at his origin story, if you're into superheroes. you know, Where did this all start? Where did the Apostle Paul come from? And he starts with his life before Jesus. Look at verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul calls this life before Jesus his former life. And it, it's his former life indeed. It's radically different. Paul was in his former life very religious and extremely ruthless at the same time. First, Paul was really religious. You see that in verse 14. He said he was advanced in Judaism beyond many of his own age and his own people. And he was zealous for, for God. He was an extremely religious man. We see in Acts 22.3, Paul says that he's a Jew, that he was born in Tarsus, that he was brought up in Jerusalem, and then he was educated, it says, at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictest manner of the law of our fathers. That um, teacher, Gamaliel, is a famous, uh, was a famous rabbi of the time, a famous teacher of the time. Um, You can see him in Acts 5, was not a believer, but this was Paul's teacher in Judaism. And he's also famous even in extra-biblical literature. So if you look in like um, Jewish literature uh, of that time that recounts the history of that time, this is a guy in the history books as a major teacher. So Paul had this very privileged education. He had this kind of Ivy League education, right, um, in, that, in that whole kind of culture. And he was a rising star. You look in verse 14. He says, I was advanced in Judaism beyond all those my own age. I was, I was in the top of my class, right? I was voted most likely to succeed. Like, I was the person that went after it. It says in Acts 22 that he was trained in the strictest manner of the law of our fathers. And 14 says that he was zealous for God, extremely zealous for God. In Acts 26.4, he says this, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own people, that is known to all Jews, for they have known this for a long time if they were willing to testify, is that I 
I learned from the strictest party of our religion, and I have lived as a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And I know Pharisees have a real bad rap because in the Gospels, the Pharisees were the ones that Jesus was debating with. Those were his main critics. But if you look at all the, the Jewish leaders of that time and all the teachers of that time, the Pharisees were actually the good guys. The Pharisees were the guys that were kind of the Bible-believing guys. They were the guys with the good theology. Um, they weren't like the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels and afterlife and the resurrection. They were very much like a 20th century you know, liberal Christian where they didn't believe in all these spiritual things. It's easy to remember, you know, that they didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. Okay, so um, anyway, so the, the Pharisees were the very religious, very theologically sound. They knew their Bibles. They were zealous. They were passionate, took God's word for what it was. They would stand on God's word. I mean, there were those kind of people, right? So Paul is this guy that's exceptionally religious, except Paul was also extremely ruthless. Look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Circle those words, persecuted, violently, destroy it, right? And guys, this is not an overstatement. When you look in Acts 7.58, you can see Paul's origin there and how ruthless he was. Um, and just to give you a little bit of the backstory there, um, Jesus dies 33 AD, three days later, raised from the dead, 40 days after that, he ascends. Um, about 10 days after that's Pentecost. Um, the gospel's preached. Tons of Jews come to believe by the thousands. Um, things are going well for a while. Then the persecution breaks out. First one to be killed in that is Stephen. Stephen was this, you know, one of these earliest deacons, an amazing guy, uh, amazing command of the word of God, um, a person that, you know, all the, the believers loved. And as they took him out, they, it says in Acts seven fifty eight that they cast him out of the city, Stephen, and they stoned him. They threw rocks at him until he died. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of the execution. Now Saul, Paul, same name, but his life changed so much, God changed his name as well. But um, Saul approved of the execution. And then it says, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then it says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul, or Paul, was ravaging the church. And entered house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Can you guys imagine? Can you guys imagine you come to church this morning and we're all kind of, you know, a little edgy. We're trying to concentrate. And the thing that's making us, you know, edgy is not, you know, our worries and things like that. But that somebody might come in that door and attack us. And not just like attack us and hurt us, but like take us bound away from our homes, away from our city, back to the headquarters in Jerusalem, put us on trial, who knows do what to us. And you would know that guy's name. That guy's name's Saul. Like you would know that's the guy that might come for us. He might come bringing things against us. In fact, right up until right before God called him, it says in Acts 9, on his way, he's about to meet Jesus, hadn't met him yet. He's about to meet him. And on the way, it says that Paul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of Jesus. Paul, by the time he was converted, had already arrested, imprisoned, and even killed many of God's people. And you might ask yourself, what explains this? So this guy, and he says even after his conversion, he goes, you know, when I was, before I knew Jesus, I was passionate for God. This is a guy that was passionate for God. This is a guy that, that was strict. This was a Bible-believing guy. This was a guy that took his life very seriously, took the word of God seriously, took God seriously. This is a very, very, very religious man. And yet, he's extremely ruthless. What explains that? You know? You'd ask yourself, how can someone be both so religious and so ruthless to people? 
You know, and you might ask yourself, well, doesn't religion make people better? Right? If religion makes people better, what's up with him? Yes, religion does not necessarily make people better. I think that's a common misconception. I've even heard, you know, well-meaning Christians debating it online and stuff, how religion, you know, being religious is better than not being religious and how it improves. Not necessarily. It really depends on what those religious beliefs are. Guys, legalistic religion, the kind Paul believed, will make you far worse than if you had no religion at all. And maybe you guys have seen that. You say, like, well, why is that? Why is it that, that this kind of legalistic religion would make somebody so vicious towards other people? And, and, and the answer is this, guys. If you basically believe, like Paul used to, that you're accepted before God and belong to God because of your superior accomplishments and beliefs, then you are going to naturally look down and disdain those who don't measure up, right? I mean, if you think, if your thought system is, I'm right with God, I belong to him, I'm right with him because I actually live better than people around me and believe better than people around me, it's very natural for you to, to disdain and look down at other people and to fiercely defend your religion. You know, Paul has a need to defend this thing because this is what validates him. You know, him, you know, rising in this particular religion. Legalistic religion, guys, a religion that says that you're right before God because you're better or more devout or more theologically solid or more spiritual or more moral will make you ten times more prejudiced, judgmental, unforgiving, gossipy, condemning, and angry than if you had no religion at all. And we've seen it, right? We've seen it. Like, this isn't something that's foreign to us. And I just want to say to you guys, and I say this to myself too, if you've found any of those things increasing in your heart since you became a Christian, you're doing it wrong, okay? If you see that after becoming a Christian, you've become at all more prejudiced, judgmental, unforgiving, gossipy, condemning, or angry, you're doing it wrong. You're actually trusting in your own righteousness, not Jesus's. It's evidence of that. Um, and guys, religious arrogance is no better than irreligious arrogance. In fact, it's worse because you think God's on your side. <laughs> you know, you go around with a superiority complex and think God's behind you nodding and agreeing. That's what Paul was like. That's what the situation in his life was like. Legalistic religion allows us to look down and disdain others while feeling like God agrees with us. Uh, Miss Maudie in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, you remember her? She's a colorful character in that book. She said this, sometimes the Bible in the hand of one man is worse than a whiskey bottle. It's true of Paul. <laughs> Would have way rather put a whiskey bottle in Paul's hand than a copy of the Torah, right? This was a weapon that he used against other people. Some church people are actually li living in legalism, not in the gospel, and their religion has made them far worse than if they had no religion at all. And I just say, guys, with all, you know, compassion and with a view to my own heart, don't assume that's not you, you know, don't assume that's not you. Because we, you know, we look at Paul and we go, yeah, it's obvious in Paul's life. But guys, we cannot be doing any of those outward actions, but we could have that same angry legalist trying to scratch his way out of our hearts, right? We could have that same raging legalist in there um, that's judging people and condemning people and angry at people all the time and can't figure out why other people can't get it together and be more like me, right? He's in there. And, and what I'm praying for in this message is for all of us, including myself, that the Holy Spirit would just, like, squash that guy, <laughs> you know, that guy that's in our hearts. Um, Christopher Hitchens, before he died, he was an atheist, and he wrote a book called God is Not Great. Do you remember him? He, he was an uh, amazing writer, and he's very um, uh, winsome, I think, in his own way. Um, but an atheist, he wrote a book, God is Not Great, and the subtitle was this, How Religion Poisons Everything. 
Okay? And so he just went through and showed how religion does not make people better. And I'll tell you what, I read the book, and if you would insert in their legalistic religion, we agree 100%. <laughs> he showed tons of examples of how people who are trusting their own righteousness, man-made legalistic religion, it's actually made them worse. I would totally agree with that. He didn't mean to write a book like that, but I, I, I see what he means. Before Paul met Jesus, he was a dramatic example of the legalism that can brew in our own hearts. So what's the solution, guys? What's the solution? Because I'll tell you what the solution is for a lot of young people now, is they see that, they've seen people like that, and they go, it's not for me then. Like, I'm not even going to bother with Christianity when I've seen what it's created in certain people's actions and minds. And, and they're rejecting something that isn't Christianity. They're rejecting legalistic religion. But what's the solution? What's the solution to a heart that's so religious but so self-righteous? You know, is there a way to be zealous for God, to be passionate for God, to, to love God's word and believe every word of it, and yet not end up judgmental, prideful, and condemning person? Is there a solution to that? That's what young people are asking today. They're asking, is there any way to do that? There's examples of those who have been passionate for God and yet self-righteous everywhere for them. So what's the solution? Guys, the solution to someone that's religious and yet ruthless is an encounter with Jesus. Um, no one who has met the real Jesus ever came away feeling superior to others. <laughs> right? No one that's ever really encountered Jesus has walked away and gone like, man, what's up with these fools? Right? It puts us in a totally different mindset. No one that's ever met the real Jesus has walked away feeling superior to others. When we meet Jesus, guys, it destroys all of our supposed righteousness. And that's what God has waiting for Paul on the road to Damascus. So about a year after Jesus' death, uh, resurrection, and ascension, Paul is on his way breathing threats and murders towards the church, and God has a meeting with Jesus arranged for him. And so in verse 15, He's writing to the Galatians about this. It's about 15 years after his conversion. He talks all about his life before Jesus. And then what's the first word in verse 15? But. <laughs> Love those. Okay? He says, but when he who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Um, that but is awesome. And, and the but there points to the fact that God had other plans for him. And God actually set him apart before his birth. Did you catch that? Like even before Paul was born, God had a plan to go after this guy. He had a plan to go after this guy and he let him go out for a while and then all of a sudden he went for him, right? And you think, well, why Paul? Why would God choose to save and send a guy like Paul, a guy like Saul? What do you think? Because he's a good guy? Because he believes the Bible? Because he has a great faith? No. Paul was the most undeserving person on the road to Damascus that day, guaranteed. There were lots of other people God could have, God could have chosen and God could have called. Why did, he call, why did he call Paul? And it says in verse 15, it was by his grace. It was purely out of grace. Paul says later in 1 Timothy, he says that, like, he went after me because I'm like, I was the worst of all sinners. I was, I was the one that would magnify his grace. What's grace? Grace is God's disfavor, God's favor to those who deserve his disfavor. Grace is God's favor to those who deserve his disfavor. Uh, and God's the kind of God who enjoys extending grace. All of us struggle with that, right? We all struggle with people in our lives that we know God would call us to forgive them and extend them grace. And we all have that internal like, okay. God doesn't have that. God loves to extend grace. This is like his thing. This is what he does. This is what he's known for. It's his glory to extend grace. 
So he called Paul by his grace, and he also called Paul for his glory. And we see that in the last verse of this whole section, verse 24, when it talks about these people were hearing that Paul came to Christ, and it says that they glorified God because of him. It was for God's glory. Guys, can you imagine every Sunday we fear this guy coming in here and taking us away and imprisoning us? And then there's this rumor going around that, like, hey, that dude got saved. We're like, oh, what a relief, you know? Like, we don't have to worry about that guy anymore, you know? Yeah, and he preaches now. And you're like, like, what does he preach? He preaches the gospel. And you're like, the real one? Yes. He preaches the real gospel. And he's getting persecuted for it. You'd be like, God is so amazing, right? I mean, the glory of God. And that's why he saved you. He saved you because of his grace and for his glory. And so what Paul's saying here is he's saying that God set him apart before he was born. And so um, God the Father, uh, before Paul was even born, chose him, set him apart for this purpose. Actually, other epistles would say it happened before the foundation of the world, so it was even further, right? And so God the Father goes, I'm going to get that guy. He's going to be mine. He's going to be my kid. Um, In 33 AD, God the Son pays the penalty for Paul's debt for his ruthlessness, right? Knowing that he's going to get saved the next year. And then he lets him go for a little bit, and then the Father turns to the Holy Spirit and says, get him, right? That day it was like, all right, get him. And the Holy Spirit arranges this meeting with Jesus. And this meeting with Jesus, guys, is devastating to Paul's life. So much so that he talks about his former life, (laughs) the former life that got shattered, right? Luke tells a story in Acts 9. Take a look at it. Acts 9, 1. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, like search warrants, right? Um, so that if he found any, or arrest warrants, so that if he found any that belonged to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he's on his way, he's got his paperwork, he's going to go track him down. As he approached Damascus, a sudden light from heaven shone around him, and he fell on the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So that led by, leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and ate and drank nothing. Guys, in an instant, Paul's life, everything he lived for, everything he prided himself on, in the very worst sense of the word, was destroyed. <laughs> it was gone. Can you imagine for Paul what that was like? Can you imagine knowing that everything you've worked for was a lie? Can you imagine thinking like, you're God's star player. Everybody tells you that, right? You're God's star player. You're like, you're not even just teaching sound doctrine. You're not, you know, just standing for the Lord. You're not just passionate and praying all this stuff. You're going out on missions trips, kind of, to like hunt out heresy. Like you're God's star player. Like you're definitely getting like a front row seat in the age to come, right? And then you find out you've actually been working for the enemy. You've been playing on the enemy's side your whole life. This is devastating, right? This is like his life is over. Everything that he ever looked to to feel good about himself, he finds out all those things that he would have listed, they all point his condemnation. They're all sin. Like, he's devastated. The guy doesn't eat or drink for three days. 
He's devastated. His, his whole identity, his whole righteousness is leveled. And we see that, how devastating it is in, in the things that he describes here. There was a blinding light, you know. I couldn't see for three days. Points to the holiness of God, right? Points to the fact that God is so holy, you can't look upon him unprotected. You'll be blinded for days. Some people, guys, think that they can kind of just like waltz right up to God on the final day and somehow demand things of him, be able to stand before him uncovered um, without, you know, on their own merits. You've heard people say, well, he's got a lot of explaining to do. When I see the Lord, he's got a lot of explaining to do. Oh, really? I think you might want to change that a little before the time comes, right? Guys, we, aren't, we don't question him. Guys, he, you remember the eclipse just a few weeks ago? Some of you guys maybe still have eye damage from it. You didn't listen. If you can't even look at the sun when it's eclipsed, what makes you think you can stand before God without some sort of protection? You can't look at the sun when it's covered, <laughs> Right? How could you possibly stand before God on your own merit? How could you possibly stand before him without some sort of shield, right? And then you see it from his fall. His whole life comes crashing down. You see it in the voice from heaven, right? It's always God's word that does this, right? It's always God's word that levels us like this. And then it leaves him blind and unwilling to eat or drink for days. Paul's life was over. (laughs) Whatever he was going to be or do or think about himself, he couldn't go back to the old way of thinking. His former life was over. And that's what the gospel does, guys. The gospel tears down that self-constructed, you know, supposed righteousness before God that we've built around ourselves. Because we all tell ourselves a story of the things that we've done or why we're pretty good people, a lot better than most. You know, not as good as some, but, you know, we have this story we tell us. It's totally false. And so the gospel has to tear down that self-constructed, supposed righteousness before we're going to receive Jesus' righteousness as a gift, right? It illustrates to you this way. If somebody said to me tomorrow, they said, hey, Eric, you need to move out of your house. You move down the street into this other house. I'd say, that's okay. I already have a house. But if somebody blew my house up, I would happily take shelter in that other house, right? That's what the gospel does with our self-righteousness. It blows up our house, right? The gospel blows up that leaky, weak-walled cardboard house that you've built of false righteousness, something you take shelter in, something that you feel pretty good about yourself in, a house, guys, that cannot stand in the day of judgment. It's a house that cannot stand. And Paul found that out. He found that out on the road, right? And if, he, if the gospel does that, then we're going to happily seek um, refuge in the righteousness of Jesus, And God does this to every single Christian. If you are a disciple of Jesus, he must have done this to you at some point. Now, it might not have been that dramatic. You might not have been knocked down and blinded, not able to eat and stuff like that. Maybe he didn't blow up your house all at once. Maybe it dissolved around you. You know, you had this house basically made of sugar cubes. And God showed you over time as it's kind of like falling down around you. But you came to a point where you realized that in and of myself, I'm not actually a pretty good person that occasionally does bad things. I'm a bad person that occasionally does good things, that are also bad, okay? Like, that's basically what you find out, right? And, and so the gospel does this, and it, it dissolves our self-righteousness so that we'll want the gospel, so that we'll want Christ's righteousness. On these cards I give you guys, so these, these are like little invite cards, finally free cards. And then we got, um, you guys just saw we had signage out front, which is kind of fun and exciting. We'll have some bathroom signs eventually. Um, they may also say finally free on them. Um, and the child care, the cl- kids' classes, that'll definitely say finally free. Um, but on this card here, it says, um, it's a Tim Keller quote. It says, the gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. That's what happened to Paul, right? That's his righteousness come tumbling down. But the gospel also says that you are more loved and accepted in Christ, within him, 
than you ever dared hope. That's what the gospel tells us. And for some of you, what you need to hear is that first part. And for some of you, you know that first part and you're not feeling the second part. Make sure you feel the second part too, that in Jesus, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. We're more sinful than we think, but we're a heck of a lot more loved and accepted than we think too. Both of those things are hard for us to remember, aren't they? You know, we tend to proper rights to that, but we also don't feel as loved and accepted as we really are. Guys, your level of righteousness, if you're in Christ, never changes. His love and acceptance of you never varies based on your obedience. Which is crazy, because in normal life, you know, people kind of, their acceptance and love of you will alter based on how well you perform for them. The gospel's not like that. You're as righteous as Jesus is when you're in him, because you have his righteousness. It's not yours. And guys, that's super freeing, guys. It's super freeing to not have to prove yourself to yourself, to others, to God, to prove that you're right or good or have it all together, but just rest in the fact that you're, because you're in Christ, you have his righteousness. It's yours. And so by telling his conversion story, Paul's basically saying to these guys in Galatia, you know, these legalistic people come in, they go, oh, well, you need this and you need that. And that's, you need to add this circumcision and keeping the law of Moses and those different things. This legalistic message. Paul's basically saying this. He's saying, guys, I know all about that legalistic message they bring. I lived it. It's not that I forgot to tell you about it. It's not that I was afraid to tell you about it because it's kind of hard for you to hear. I just left that kind of thing on the road to Damascus years ago. You know, it won't work. God demolished my trust in me and anything that I can do to earn, it, earn my keep with him. I learned that being in Jesus is all that I need for God to receive me. And it's really cool. And if you jog over to Philippians, which is right nearby here, um, you can remember Galatians, Ephesians, it's Gentiles eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I don't know why you need that, but if you did, there you go. You'll never forget it. Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, he's warning about the same kind of teachers to the Philippians. And, he, and this is what he calls those, those, those false teachers in Philippians 3, 2. He says, look out for dogs. I love that. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These would be people that are telling them to get circumcised. And he says, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's where Paul had, had come. That's what the gospel's about. And then he says, though I myself had reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone had reason for confidence in the flesh or in his own accomplishments, I had more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's reading his resume, right? This is the resume he used to show people. And he says, but whatever I gained, uh, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I've counted everything as loss. For what? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, that's no joke, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to that. That I might be found in him. That I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What's he talking about there? Found in him. He's talking about union with Christ. The gospel, in its essence, is about union with Christ. It's about being united or bound to Christ in such a way that everything he deserves is something that you now deserve because he deserved it for you. And everything that you deserved, he got on the cross because of his union with you. It's about union. How about you? 
have you given up relying on your own righteousness? It's a process, by the way. (laughs) And we go back and forth to thinking that somehow we have kind of measured up. You know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Have you guys ever read that book? So the book's nothing like the the cartoon version at all. So he's he's a scientist, um, Dr. Jekyll. And um, his main reason for, for taking this serum in the beginning is he, he realizes that he wants to do lots of good, but he's got this bad part of him, and there's a wrestle. Sounds just like Romans 7. The guy was not a believer that wrote it, but it's amazing. So he had this wrestle, and he thought, I need to get rid of the bad part of me so that I can do more good, right? So he takes the serum to separate him, and so he separates him out. And so most of the time, he gets to be Dr. Jekyll, and he's got no bad part, and he's free to make discoveries and help people do all these good things. But the cost to pay is sometimes he's Mr. Hyde, where he kills people and does all kinds of evil things because he's 100% evil. He separated it, right? It's more efficient that way. And um, all kinds of heinous things happen. He eventually, you know, um, breaks free from that, and he stops taking the serum and all that. And he's sitting on a park bench one day, and he's kind of thinking about his life, and he's thinking about all the terrible things he did as Mr. Hyde. And then he starts saying, you know what? Since I stopped taking the serum and stuff, you know, I've done a lot of good things. You know, I've actually done a lot of good things. I feel like I've really changed my life. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And he looked down at his hands, and for the first time, he'd come, become Mr. Hyde without the serum. That's what legalism's like. <laughs> you know, I've started to pay my own way. I started, you know, I, I am a pretty good person. I think I'm actually, like, paying my own freight now. And then what do we turn into? We turn into Mr. Hyde. That's where it comes from. It's about resting in Christ's righteousness. And I just want to ask you this. Is it transforming the way you think about yourself? And, and one way you can use that, you can use this card. This is an invite card, but this is a card you could be looking at too. Do you see yourself daily as more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe? You go like, yikes, that's another level. <laughs> I didn't know I had. That's a good thing, okay? It's good to see that. I know that for some of you, especially when you start to grow in Christ in the very beginning, you start to see more and more of your sin. It becomes very disturbing. That doesn't necessarily mean you're committing more sin, uh, especially if it's heart stuff. It means you're seeing it. Um, Jerry Bridges uses this illustration of a dimmer switch. He says, when we first come to Christ, you know, there's this room, and it's dirty, and it's a mess, stuff like that, but the lights are turned around real dim. And the Holy Spirit starts to kind of clean up that room, but he also starts to turn up the dimmer switch. So guess what? You actually think you're getting worse <laughs> because you're seeing more. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. It makes us, he makes us more sensitive to, to sin, and he helps us to see things. So do you see yourself as more sinful and flawed than you ever dare believe? And are you in the process of seeing yourself more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared hope? That's how you would know it's transforming how you think about yourself. That God loves you no matter what your performance is if you're in him. All that matters is that you're in him. Is it transforming the way you look at others? I think this is important. Are you growing less judgmental, less prejudiced, less gossipy, less angry, less superior? Do you have less outrage? Where do we do outrage? On Facebook, right? Yeah, okay. Right? Do you have less outrage? Okay? I think you should really check yourself on that. That is not a fruit of the Spirit, outrage. I'm pretty sure. Or do you find yourself becoming more compassionate, more understanding, more kind, more forgiving? Guys, no one who's met the real Jesus has ever come away feeling superior to others, right? Okay? Is it transforming the way you think about God? You know? You think about God the way you think about God. Uh, Do you feel less entitled less deprived, less like questioning him, more grateful, more content, more trusting, happier, more at rest. 
That would be fruit of you not looking to your own righteousness. Because a person that's looking at their own righteousness is going to feel entitled from God, deprived by God, feel like questioning God, not be grateful towards him, right? But as it grows in there, I want to ask some of you that are here, maybe you've never actually seen your need for Jesus. You know, maybe you've never seen your need for Jesus until this morning. How do you, how can you receive him? And, and it's simple, really. It would be that you would run out of that run-down shelter that you've constructed of your own righteousness, your own sin, that you'd run out of that and you'd run into, G- hide yourself in Jesus. That's what, that's what faith's about. And so during the, this morning's worship, you could just say to the Lord very simply, you could say, I'm ready, cover me, be my savior, be my king. Make me yours. Make me new. Very simple things like that. Leaving your own righteousness and trusting in him. And talk to me. We'd love to like help you with next steps of what you could do to grow in your relationship. Not make yourself more righteous, <laughs> but to grow in your relationship. And if that's true of you, whether that happened you know, years ago or it happened today, you can know that just like Paul, God set you apart before your birth. You just realize that? Every one of you are in Christ. God planned that before your birth. He chose you before your birth. The, God the Father did, specifically. We know that it was God the Father. He chose you before your birth. He had God the Son pay your debt in 33 AD, all of your sins paid. And then at just the right time in your life, God the Father turns to God the Spirit and says, Get her. Get him. And you found yourself, strangely, probably shockingly, maybe similar to Paul dramatically, maybe over a process, you found yourself suddenly trusting in Christ. And you thought, this is strange. You know, a friend of mine, he got saved a couple years ago, and he called me, and he's all, something great happened to me. And I said, what happened? He's all, I'm a Christian now. And I was like, that's amazing, because we had talked about um, the gospel a whole bunch together. And he goes, yeah, Eric, just just the other day, I I was really upset, because I'm late for church, right? So I'm late for church, I'm driving, and then I forgot my Bible, so I turn around, I go through my house, and I'm tearing through things, and I'm, I'm super frustrated. And then, and then he goes, and then all of a sudden I went, I'm late for church? You know, like, I go to church, <laughs> you know, just, just hit him how his life had changed. And he's like, I have a Bible I can't find? You know, it was just like, he, God had changed his life. And God does that. And it's all by grace, guys. It's all by grace. It's all for his glory. God is the kind of God who loves to extend grace. It's his glory to extend it. Let's pray. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.